Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com slash unconfirmed. My guest today is blockchain consultant Jill Carlson, who has worked with 0x and DYDX, Algorand, Tezos, and O1 Labs, and the IMF. Welcome, Jill. Great to be here. Thanks, Laura. I think we're all still recovering from blockchain week last week. At least I am. I'm recuperating with my first vacation in way too long. But since so much so much news has come out in the last few weeks, and you're also known for your wry commentary on the space, I was wondering what your take is generally on what's happening now. Yeah, blockchain week was a bit of a doozy, to say the least. Um, I think you're absolutely right. We are all still in recovery mode. I think what's been really interesting to me is to watch the evolution of the conference over the last few years and sort of see what that says about where the industry is at every given point. You know, I have kind of a funny thing that I say, which is that people tend to work in cryptocurrency for a handful of reasons. They're either here for the crypto anarchy, for the blockchain hype, for the Lambos, or possibly for the memes. And I feel like that <laughs> sort of expresses some of the trajectory that the conference itself has had over the last four years. You know, back in 2015, I wasn't actually there, but from what I've heard, the conference was really just a lot of sort of OG cryptocurrency people, you know, real hardcore technologists building in the space. 2016 was definitely the year of the bankers, you know, Wall Street coming in, um, blockchain, not Bitcoin. 2017 felt like the year of the consultants. I think Deloitte had something like 250 people there last year. Um, But it was also a point where we started to see some of this transition to the ICO hype. I remember in particular, Ripple had changed a a lot of its branding away from its enterprise technology and towards XRP at last year's conference. And to say the least, we've seen that sort of taken to its, I would call, illogical conclusion this year, where (laughs) it was really a lot of the conference itself was about the Lambos. (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry, just to draw that connection out. Were you saying that the the illogical conclusion refers to Ripple or to consensus? Uh, To the space as a whole, you know, I mean, it's To me, it was a bit of a sign of the times last year when Ripple started shifting back more towards focusing on on XRP, you know, its its token, whether or not you believe it's centralized or value add or whatever, Um, you know, that was 
that was their core product offering, it seemed like, at last year's conference, which had me at least raising my eyebrows. But it was really a sign of what was yet to come, not just for Ripple, but for the industry as a whole, where we've since then had this whole expo- explosion of ICOs and a huge, huge amount of the marketing at the conference this year was for these ICO pro- projects that have emerged within the last six, nine months. You know, you had cartoon characters roaming the floor and roaming the lobbies, um, you know, dressed up as these various coins and tokens, uh, airdropping t-shirts on you, that sort of thing. You know, you had 23-year-old crypto hedge fund managers giving you literal elevator pitches in the elevator at the conference, <laughs> telling you why you should you know, put their money in their fund. Um, so just, you know, it really, to me, what it sort of irresistibly reminded me of was that scene in the movie, The Big Short, uh, where they walk into the mortgage conference in 2006. And, you know, it's the peak of the market. And, you know, there's just such euphoria in the air. And it's interesting because obviously, you know, we're not at the all-time highs. We're not at the all-time peak of the market. But consensus 2018 definitely still felt very euphoric. Uh, Although I think that to a lot of us walking away from it, you know, there's just a feeling of sort of exhaustion and sort of, you know, deep existential questioning of, what's really going on in this space, because it's a little all over the place at the moment. Yeah, and I don't want to belabor Ripple. I think the <laughs> listeners of my other podcast, Unchanged, know that I have a lot of questions about that token. But I just want to say that I find something interesting about your mention of it is that in recent weeks, they have been distancing themselves from XRP and trying to say that actually it's a decentralized token and not affiliated with Ripple and things like that. So that's also another twist. Um, And also reflective, I think, of 2018 and this sort of regulatory overhang that we're seeing. But one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was I know that you have written about why crypto looks a lot like Wall Street now. So what do you mean by that? And how did you see that in play at during blockchain week? Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot about sort of the history of the space and the trajectory that it's taken, at least since 2013, when I started to get involved in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And at least the way that I remember it, you know, to me, 2013 was really all about Bitcoin. It was pretty much the only game in town at the time. 2014, you started to see this shift of focus into, well, okay, what other assets could we create using this technology? And that was sort of this altcoin craze that we saw emerge then. Then in 2015, 2016, we, for the first time, saw Wall Street get really heavily involved in the industry as a whole. But of course, their focus at that time was all on how can we use blockchain technology, probably permissioned blockchain technology, as infrastructure to revolutionize our back offices, what have you. Then, as of last year, as I mentioned, we saw this shift back away from that focus on infrastructure, back onto new assets into ICOs. And so there's been this sort of fluctuation back and forth over time of focusing on creation of new assets, on 
public blockchains generally uh, to focus on infrastructure, uh, you know, in 2015 and 16, again, as I said, that looked like permissioned blockchains. Then, you know, again, to focusing on assets in the form of ICOs this time. And so what I'm getting at here is there's been this sort of bipolar nature of the evolution of the space where on the one hand, there are many attempts to create a new system around Wall Street's asset classes. And on the other hand, there have also been maybe not intentional attempts, but at least results of recreating Wall Street systems around these new asset classes of cryptocurrencies. And what I mean specifically by that is, you know, if you look around at a lot of what happened last year, yes, we saw these booms of tokens being issued and ICOs coming to market. But, you know, the way that people were, quote unquote, using them or, you know, even using them just for speculation, it was all still through centralized infrastructure, through centralized exchanges, through centralized custodians, for the most part. You know, it's really only in general still people who maybe were subject to the Mt. Gox hack or other hacks who really appreciate, I think, today the importance of self-custody. Um And so that's, you know, one kind of frustration that I have where, okay, we have all of these new crypto assets that are, you know, varying degrees of decentralized, one might say, but the way that they're being used remains highly centralized. And it just looks a lot like at least what I remember of of Wall Street. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of bad behavior from Wall Street that is being replicated here in the crypto world, which we'll discuss in a second. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Element Group is a full service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. Element's goal is to focus on clients in an integrative manner by offering all services a crypto-enabled company requires throughout its life cycle, such as corporate finance, asset management, OTC trading, treasury solutions, and technology services. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com unconfirmed. I'm speaking with blockchain consultant Jill Carlson. So let's dive into that topic a little bit. I'm curious to know your take on what bad behaviors you feel like you're seeing that are coming over from Wall Street or or even maybe new to the crypto space, but that, you know, here we are thinking that we're creating this like idealistic new financial system that's going to solve all the problems from the old one, but instead it's it's actually generating either more problems or the same problems. Well, yeah, so this is the great irony, right, is at least to me, and maybe I was a bit bit of an idealist at the time, but I first got into Bitcoin. I first sort of came across it uh, when I was working on Wall Street. And to me, again, perhaps idealistically at the time, it represented this just completely alternative financial system. You know, here's a chance at a fresh start. And importantly there, I would highlight part of my frustration with working on Wall Street was a lot of the sort of misbehavior that I saw going on around me where even post 2008, you know, uh, reckless risk-taking was still being rewarded. You know, you would see spoofing and varying degrees of insider trading go on in these markets. And, you know, there is something about that that is just sort of deeply unfair. And, you know, I think that that is a plot line that resonates with a lot of people who work in this space. You know, if you even go back to sort of the origin stories of Bitcoin and 
and, you know, with the, what was hashed into the first block, you know, it was this disillusionment with Wall Street. And yet I look around today and, you know, the clear amount of market manipulation that goes on, you know, the, the very fact that a lot of these assets that we've come up with, it's no better. And in many ways, it's actually, I would argue, much, much worse than a lot of the, you know, financial innovation that, that goes on on Wall Street. Just hugely problematic things. You know, I call out Tether. I'm, you know, a little bit known at this point, I guess, uh, for not being a huge fan of that system, as many are in this market. But it's just so ironic to me that this technology that was supposed to, you know, promise transparency and accountability, it's, you know, just created this completely opaque asset class that for all we know is posing a systemic risk. And your criticism of Tether is that it is basically centralized, right? Because there is this entity that should be accepting these dollars and keeping them in reserve. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's all of these questions about, well, theoretically, it's, you know, pegged to a dollar, but it's not redeemable. So what does that actually mean? And my real problem with all of this, honestly, is not that you know, there's no place for something like Tether in this market, in the cryptocurrency market or in markets in general. On the contrary, I think that the very fact that Tether still exists and gets used is a testament to the fact that it does serve some utility. My problem with it, though, is that it strikes me as fundamentally dishonest. You know, on Wall Street, at least you have all of these disclosures and regulatory requirements and hoops that you have to jump through. And this is where I definitely do differentiate uh, quite substantially from many of my colleagues in this ecosystem. I do strongly believe in some degree of consumer protection and indeed even regulation. I'm not, I'm not your sort of standard OG classical libertarian crypto anarchist. <laughs> so you must have um, at least been pleased, maybe if not cheered the news that the CFTC is investigating wash trading on several exchanges. You know, I think that it's an important part of the maturation process of this market. Um, you know, do do I think that they are necessarily going about sort of turning over the correct stones to find the biggest problems in the market or, you know, the biggest troublemakers in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. You know, are there things that I would do differently if if I was in their shoes? It's easy for me to sit here and say yes, probably. But ultimately, you know, I think that these actions are just necessary for the space to to start to grow up, really. And you've worked a lot with several decentralized exchange protocols. What do you see as the significance of DEXs? Yeah, so decentralized exchange, I would say, is, in my view, one of the really bright spots of really promising innovation in the space. Decentralized exchanges, to me, are a great example of a return to this focus on infrastructure, blockchain technology as infrastructure for assets, not just as a mechanism for issuing endless altcoins or, or ICO tokens. And specifically to me, what decentralized exchanges do is they open up new optionality uh, for users, for traders, indeed even for speculators who are the primary users in the cryptocurrency markets today. 
I, I would clarify, however, that you know decentralized exchange can be kind of a confusing term because there are various things that you can decentralize here. Today, largely what decentralized exchange refers to is what I would call a non-custodial exchange or self-custodial exchange, where it enables uh, really more peer-to-peer interaction when you're going to do a trade. Um, I can trade directly from my ledger wallet to your ledger wallet or from my MetaMask to yours, which is a big step forward when you think about you know, the multi-multi-millions, perhaps even billions of dollars in funds that are custodied on centralized exchanges today as single points of failure and as really as bottlenecks um, to the liquidity of this market. And I know that, so if that is one area that needs further development, there's another that you've identified, which is you've been thinking about blockchain-based credit. What would you say are the problems there? Yeah, so something that struck me as I was doing this work with uh, the decentralized exchange ecosystem is that, you know, one of the things that this promises, and you see this in the projects that are being built on specifically, in my mind, the Zero X infrastructure, is a lot of them are based around the idea of lending or margin or derivatives. Um, but in order to extend a loan, in order to borrow, you also need to have some kind of notion of a credit score. Um, and today, uh, you know, that's a really tricky problem, right? Because if you think back to sort of the real world or the legacy world, well, it's always single centralized third parties who give you, endow you with a credit score, right? Whether it's your FICO score, whether it's a credit ratings agency. And a little personal anecdote here is that a lot of what actually got me thinking about this was I was trying to rent out a new apartment, which in San Francisco demands a full-on credit check. And it was just an absolute nightmare. And it just struck me how broken the legacy system is. And it got me thinking about, well, you know, okay, I'm perhaps one of these more cynical people who loves to talk about how you don't really need a blockchain for this, or, you know, you're going to cause more problems for yourself by trying to embed a token there. But it struck me that, okay, well, in this case, the legacy system is well and truly broken. And so perhaps there are ways in which this can be solved, um, you know, using in, in a more decentralized way, using leveraging some of this technology that we have out there. So yeah, notions of decentralized credit scoring um, are something that I've been giving a lot of thought to. And how do you think that might work? Because as you pointed out, typically, it is a centralized service that offers that. Yeah, exactly. So what you need to solve for, I think, is basically a marketplace um, to create a marketplace of sort of competing uh, credit scorers or ratings agencies, whatever it might be. And in order to do that, you need to have a way to basically open source data around a given identity or in blockchain speak, a given public-private key pair, um, which basically serves as your identity proxy on the blockchain. Now, importantly here, often I think when people start to talk about identity in blockchain land, in my view, you can start to get into these really dystopian visions of the future where suddenly all of your data is you know, being published openly on this, on this public ledger 
you know, I certainly don't want my passport or, you know, all of my credit history or, you know, whatever it is to be open sourced and, and linked to a single identity in that way. But I do think that there are interesting notions of being able to attest certain things to certain public-private key pairs and then give people the optionality to claim that and claim that credit history as their own that can then be priced either by you know, this marketplace of third parties or by the lender on the other side of, of the loan or the, the margin requirement. Huh, that sounds really interesting. And so in that regard, basically people have a lot more control, it sounds like, over, over their credit and how the information is used. That's, that's the idea. And, you know, again, I'm still sort of in the early days of fleshing out what this might look like. But, you know, I think about the options basically that are out there today, again, in the legacy world, and they are just so imperfect. And it's demonstrated in everything from the Equifax hack to, you know, there's been a lot of press and media around uh, the reputational systems that are being developed in China. And I think that, to me, one of the big promises, going back to Bitcoin of, you know, blockchain technology in general, is that it should give people this sort of spectrum of options. You know, so if I think about Bitcoin, I have the option to self-custody, to run a full node, to only ever require Bitcoins through mining. Or on the other end of the spectrum, I have the option of just using the Coinbase mobile app. And that's something that I would really like to see emerge as as an identity play and as it feeds into, again, credit scoring and this type of thing is, you know, on the one hand, maybe I have the option to have all of my attestations, all of my, uh, you know, uh, identity information or credit information linked and disclosable by me uh, linked to a single key pair Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, maybe I want to use a key pair that is completely off the grid and I'm willing to accept the trade-offs that 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 might, you know, grant me in terms of privacy uh, trading off for perhaps, you know, weaker credit. Hmm. Well, we'll see how this plays out someday, because as we know now, with at least with the digital assets or these crypto assets that a lot of people are trusting third party providers. And that's kind of the vast majority of users. But it's been so great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you so much, Laura. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.